I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 11, verses 24 through 47, 24 to 47. If you see it up on the screen, you're going to get the wrong uh, passage this morning, but it is Leviticus eleven twenty four is where we are starting. So after verse 23, which is what the screen says there, uh, verse 24. So uh, it's interesting, you know, last, last time. So we, we are uh, in this series on Leviticus, and, and the last time that I preached this, I, uh, I stood up here and I talked about rabbits and eating rabbits. And I said, if you know why God said don't eat rabbits, please tell me because I don't understand. And also, like, I've had rabbit before and it's pretty good. Yeah, right, right. So yeah, I said that and we, and we went through that. And so right after the sermon, uh, Steve Kriskovich comes up to me and he, he, he's a hunter. And he says, well, uh, you're, you're not supposed to eat rabbits um, that have been hunted and killed before the first freeze of the year, because if you eat rabbits that they, they can carry uh, tularemia or it's called rabbit fever, right? So uh, so uh, when the first freeze comes, it kills off all of the rabbits that might have rabbit fever. But if you eat the meat that has rabbit fever in it, you spread disease and that kind of thing. So that's pretty cool. I didn't realize that. And then as I was doing more research this week, it just so happened that I uh, figured uh, some interesting things out in general about animals that have paws. Right, uh, but in particular rabbits. So most pawed animals practice something called capo- caprophagy. Capro- cope. I don't. You got it. Okay, good. <laughs> Which is the consuming of one's own feces. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's just I uh, love to to fill you in on that this morning. Right. So again. We see God's remarkable wisdom in these laws that he made for his people. So we're continuing this series called Invasive God. We're uh, in this section of Leviticus known as the Purity Laws. Uh, they teach the Israelites, hey, this is how we're going to go about the basics of our lives, like every detail, in fact, of our lives is going to be governed by these laws. And it's interesting, like normally we think of religion, of relationship with God as kind of being in this small category of things we do when we worship, right? Things that we, and so God instructed them on the sacrifices. This is what you do when you approach me. But it's interesting, God's law goes so far beyond what we would consider quote unquote religious, right? He gets into the very detail of our lives. He is in fact concerned with these people that he calls his people. He is concerned with every single part of their lives and that's why we've called this series Invasive God. And we kind of set this up with Leviticus 10, 10 through 11. The, the passage that kind of frames all of these purity laws is this uh, in verse 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So, so God comes and he says, hey, listen, this, uh, my holiness, this relationship with me, it is an all of life kind of thing. It's all encompassing, right? Yes, I love you. Yes, I saved you out of the land of Egypt. Yes, I call you my treasured possession, but I saved you for relationship with me. And you need to know that relationship with me is invasive. I do care about the details of your life. 
And so we started looking at this three weeks ago. We looked at the food laws, and then we took a couple of weeks off. And uh, now we're back to it, but we're looking today at laws about dead things. Laws about dead things. So, Leviticus 11.24. It says, And by these you shall become unclean. So first of all, we kind of need to deal with this reality of cleanliness and uncleanliness. Uh, Cleanliness laws, they do two things, two primary things. The first thing that they do is that they physically protect the community from the spread of disease, right? So all of these cleanliness laws about, uh, you know, when you are unclean, there are certain places that you go, there are certain people you can't interact with until you have a status of clean, right? And that, the whole purpose of that is to keep uh, the community clean in order to not spread disease and, and, and that kind of stuff. But the second thing that they do is they teach, they train about spiritual principles that God values. These cleanliness laws help train the people in what God values. They train you for relationship with God. We talked about this with the sacrifices. Uh, as we looked at the sacrifices in Leviticus, we said, you know, these people go through these sacrifices again and again and again so that they understand and learn to like grasp ideas about who God is so that they understand what it's like to have relationship with God, right? And so these cleanliness laws, they do the same thing. They train you to value what God values as an Israelite. And it just so happens that these physical realities of protection from disease happen to overlap with the spiritual principles that God is trying to teach. So uh, for an Israelite, being clean was about learning to value what God values. That's what it was about. So Second thing to to take note of here is that it was not sinful to be unclean. It was not sinful to be unclean. It wasn't against the law to be unclean. But if you were unclean, then that kind of set a whole bunch of triggers for laws that you now had to follow because you are unclean, right? So you, number one, had to follow laws for how do I become clean now that I am unclean? But also what this meant for you, especially if you were unclean, is that you could not go to the temple to make sacrifices or you could not go to the sanctuary where God was to make sacrifices. You could not approach God and kind of uh, interact with him in relationship, have the priests priests make sacrifices for you. Uh, In order to do that, you had to become clean, right? That's what you had to do. So some distinctions here just so that we know So to eat something that God calls unclean, so it's not to touch something that God calls unclean, but to eat something that God calls unclean is sin because God says, don't do that, right? So he says, that's disobedience. If you do that, that's sin, but to touch something that is unclean is not sin, but it does make you unclean. Right? So now you adopt this new status. So it is not sinful to simply be unclean, but it is sinful to approach a holy God at his sanctuary while you are unclean. And that's why these distinctions are being set up. So remember, God's concern primarily is the holiness of his people. Right? That's what he's trying to accomplish. And it's worth us just taking note of the reality that holiness with the cleanliness laws in this case, but even in our case, holiness is something way beyond simply not sinful. Holiness is much bigger than being not sinful. Right? To be holy is to adopt God's values in every part of life. 
right? You can choose not to sin and still not value what God values, right? That is a reality that can be true. And so at the very least, for them to be considered holy enough to approach God, three things had to be true. Number one, you had to be concerned with obedience, right? That was at the very least important. Number two, you had to deal justly with sin. Right, recognizing, okay, I have a sin problem, I'm going to make a sacrifice, I need to make atonement, we need to make things right between me and God. That's the second thing that had to be true. But then you also, the third thing that had to be true is that you had to be clean in order to have holiness be a thing that describes you or at least enables you to enter into relationship with a holy God. So get this, you are not guilty for being unclean. Right? You don't have to make a sacrifice if you become unclean. But your uncleanness does create a barrier in your relationship with God, right? If you're an Israelite and you're in this time, your uncleanness, you have a hard time relating to God now because you're unclean. Even though you may not have sinned, you still cannot approach him and have relationship with him. So just to, to clarify this and make sure that we understand it, under the old covenant, what this means is that if you cared about relationship with God, you would care about cleanliness, right? So as you hear me up here saying, well, it wasn't sinful to be unclean. Most Israelites who cared about relationship with God would have been concerned with being clean, right? They, they would have paid very close attention to those things which are called clean and unclean. They would have paid very close attention to anything that might cause them in, uh, to enter into the status of unclean so that they could know what is required in order to become clean again and have relationship with God. So it's worth saying that the same is true for us today, at least in principle. Because while we are not now subjected to cleanliness laws, because it's the blood of Jesus that makes us clean, right? That's, that's what accomplishes our cleansing once and for all. But relationship with God is still way more for us than simply not sinning, right? It's way more than that. Like, we care about personal holiness through a willing obedience, right? We care about knowing Christ more and more intimately. We care about reflecting his character through every single part of our lives. And if you have trusted in Jesus, the greatest way to amplify your relationship with God is not to go around and say, okay, I'm going to try to get more information about God and I'm going to grow in my knowledge and uh, see if I can puff myself up with more and more. It's actually to say, no, I'm going to increase in personal holiness through willing obedience and I'm going to seek to know Christ more intimately and I'm going to seek to reflect his character in every part of my life. If you want to amplify your relationship with God, it, it was true for the Israelites. They're going to go through the cleanliness procedures for us, it's true that we are going to uh, amplify our relationship with God through seeking personal holiness, intimacy with Christ. Okay. So, that was cleanliness. Now we get into what the cleanliness is concerned with. So it says in verse 24, by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass or carries, and then in verse 25 it goes on and talks about carrying any part of their carcass. Verse 26, every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean 
clean. So these commands are hearkening us back to our unclean animals that we addressed in the food laws, but they're causing us to pay attention to something specific about them. If they die and we touch their carcass, we now have a problem. Right? Our holiness is now hindered if we draw close to the dead carcasses of these unclean animals. Our relationship with God now has a barrier in it. And we now need to become clean before we can relate to God. Verse 27, it goes on. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. This continues to remind us of, yes, the unclean animals that they could not eat. But it's telling us contact with their dead bodies also makes you unclean. So notice that God offers two remedies to the problem, right? The first remedy that he offers is he says, hey, you can wash. You wash your clothes. And the second remedy to the problem is time, right? You let a period of time pass. You wait until evening, right? So uh, we just need to address our impulse because whenever we're walking through this, especially in the book of Leviticus, our impulse is to ask why, right? For, for, to have God explain himself. And we talked about how, you know, well, we should just do it because God said to do it. And I, and I understand that. But I, I like that question. I like asking why here. Because on every level, the answer to that question reveals this. That God commands these things because he loves us. When we ask why here, it reveals that God commands these things because he loves us. Right? God told what is clean and unclean to Israel because he loved them. God places boundaries like, uh, uh, around spiritually and physically unsafe things because he loves you. God warns of the danger of sin because he loves you. God teaches you to value what he values because he loves you. Like what parent, and go with me on this, like what parent says, oh, my child, we'll let you find your own way. We'll, we'll let the world uh, place their ideas upon you and we'll let you kind of just carry out what the world says. I want to tell you that no matter your opinion of people you might call in the world, most parents do not frame their raising of their children like that, right? Most, even those we would consider worldly, still recognize that there is some kind of problem out there. And so in here, in this family, we're going to reinforce certain things to make sure that we don't let what's out there get in you, right? We're going to train you to value what we value because we love you, right? And it's the same is true for God, right? God is forming his people to value what he values because he wants them to look like him, right? He wants them to reflect him to the people around them. So you may not understand why God commands it, Right, but he is so good and so trustworthy that you can know if he commanded it, it's because he loves you. So we live on a side of, uh, of history that gives us access to, well, history and science. 
Right? We, have, we have scientific advances, and the reality of history and scientific advances uh, gives us some information, actually reveal to us the incredible wisdom and protection of the love of God by providing these laws for his people. Because do you know what happens to people who touch dead things all the time? They spread disease. Right? They spread disease within their community. So in verse 29, it goes on. It says, these are unclean to you. Among the swarming things that swarm on the ground, the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard. I think lizards are kind of out of bounds here. And the chameleon. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. Did you know that the bubonic plague, the black plague, could have been avoided if these laws had been followed. Right. In the 14th century, the bubonic plague was transmitted primarily through fleas that infested black rats. And the typical transmission cycle involved the fleas biting infected rats and then, the, and then biting humans. So the fleas bit the rats and then they bit the humans and they introduced the bacteria into the human bloodstream. But then it could also spread through respiratory droplets when a person, an infected person, when they coughed or they sneezed. And so between like ignoring biblical knowledge on rats and hygiene and quarantine and body burial and basic sanitation... This caused the needless death of millions of people. How many millions? Well, I mean, the, the estimates say anywhere from 75 million to 200 million people died of the Black Plague. God gives commands to us because he loves us. Right? He, he gave commands to Israel because he loves them. I mean, that is the very practical protection that these laws provided. But remember I said earlier that there is a spiritual principle that God is reinforcing. Right In this physical reality, he is teaching them to value what he values. He's shaping the way that they interact with the world. And so let me tell you about pagan religions of that day. The pagan religions of that day, and actually pagan religions in general do this, right? But pagan religions often found ways to celebrate and enshrine death. They lifted it up highly. Right, let me give you three examples. First, I want to tell you about ancient Near Eastern divination. Uh, divination is like how, you, how do you tell the future, right? How do you figure out what's going to happen? And so uh, in ancient Near Eastern divination, what they would do is they would uh, take an animal, and uh, they ever, all of this practice was built on the animal's dead body. They would uh, cut the animal down the middle, and forgive me, I'm just going to be a little gross for a minute, the guts of the animal would fall out of it, and the, the diviner, the job of the diviner was to get down on the ground very close to the dead animal and very close to the animal's, uh, yeah, right, okay, and then uh, and examine the details of how the guts of that animal fell out on the ground. And by examining those details, the diviner was able to say, oh, well, this is going to happen on this day, and this is going to happen on this day. And so the whole system was built around the dead body of this animal. That was how they did fortune-telling. I could tell you about the pagan god Molech, right? Who, the way people worshipped him was by literally bringing their children... To, uh, he was a, a brass idol that was, uh, had fire in his stomach, was lit on fire so that the brass would become hot and children were placed on the hands of the god uh, so that they would burn alive there on the altar to Molech. That was how people worshipped the god Molech. 
Uh, I could tell you about ancient war parties, and the Assyrians are the best example of this for us, who were famous for creating the most gruesome displays of death that anybody in all of the land had ever witnessed. Like, and, and torture and lifting people up. I mean, they would just lift up every place that they went, dead bodies uh, posted in all sorts of different ways on all sorts of different stands and sticks. Like, this is what they did to display their power to the people around it. But not only their power, the power of their godlike kings. So I promise that in more ways than just these, death was held up as a fascination and a fetish for pagan religion including seeking information from the dead, seeking power from dead things. And it's worth saying that some of that, actually much of that, is still left over today. Right? Like, it's no accident that the horror genre is built around death and dead things. Right? Still today... There is this interest in mediums and in speaking with the dead and in getting in touch with our ancestors. Still, today, around the world, there are religions that seek to derive power from death. This week, I talked to a a guy who runs a program in Uganda, uh, an orphanage in Uganda, and he was telling me about how the witch doctors that set themselves up in Uganda, what they literally do is they sacrifice children in order to gain power for themselves, spiritual power for themselves as witch doctors. This happens today, today in Uganda. These are the practices that are carried out. But God says, my people will be different, right? Death does not give you power. Death is a problem, right? Death is not good. Death is corruption, You will not celebrate death. You are going to separate from death. When you go near death, you need to get clean before you come back to me. He was training them to see and experience this reality. Our nearness to death hinders our ability to relate to God. It does not help us. Death is not a good thing. So verse 32, it goes on and says this. Anything on which any of them falls, that is any of these carcasses of these animals, when they are dead, shall be unclean. Anything on which any of them falls shall be unclean. Whether it is an article of wood, or a garment, or a skin, or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water, and it shall be unclean until the evening, and then it shall be clean. The implication is, yes, if you touch dead things, you're unclean. Yes, if your stuff touches dead things, your stuff becomes unclean. And yes, if you touch your stuff after it touches dead things, then you become unclean. How far does this go? Verse 33. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, And you shall break it. Verse 34. Any food in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. It's worth saying there's no five second rule here, right? Okay. If the unclean thing touches your food, 
you're not going to be eventually eating your food again. You're going to throw your food out. Your food is now unclean. If you have something in your drink, right, like you're going to throw your drink out because it is sinful to consume unclean things. Verse 35, and everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean, whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. So recognize with me for a moment what all of this would mean for a household. If something dead touches the things that you use to prepare food, you have to break those things that you use to prepare food. You have to get rid of them. You have to throw them away. They become useless to you and anybody who could possibly use them after you, so you're going to break them. It's not like, I mean, did you notice the thing about the oven or the stove? It's not like you can just go to Home Depot and buy a new stove in this culture. They have to build a new oven, right? Building a clay oven is a complicated process. In fact, it takes about six weeks to build a clay oven, which means that your whole household gets put on hold for six weeks. You cannot accomplish anything in terms of eating and drinking. Like your normal process gets so incredibly interrupted if dead things fall into your oven or on your oven. So remember that whole thing about God being invasive, right? being involved in the intricacies of our lives, being involved to the extent that our normal patterns of life might even be interrupted because of what he tells us to do. Here he's telling his people, you need to be so cautious when it comes to death that you put your life on hold when you come into contact with it. Verse 36. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water, it shall be clean. But whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. So here he clarifies, probably for survival's sake, because they can't just throw out their entire water sources, right? That he says that the sources of water, they remain clean if they come in contact with dead things, but that the removal of the dead thing, which is crucial for protecting that source of water, it will make the person who removes it unclean. Verse 37, and if any part of their carcass falls on any seed or grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed or any part of the carcass falls on it, it is unclean. So here kind of what it's saying is that uh, the grain that is used for planting, right? If it's grain that is used for planting, it's, it remains clean if something dead falls on it because it's going to grow a, a new kind of food. But if it's, if it's wet grain or grain that has water fallen or a carcass fallen, basically means any grain that you would use to consume or to eat at this point, if it has something dead on it, it becomes unclean. It's pretty comprehensive, right? Okay, so if that weren't enough, verse 39 goes on and says this. If any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches it car its carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever eats of it its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Notice a couple of things with me here. First of all, clean animals, if you come across their carcass, well, clean animals are still acceptable for eating, right? So they're less contaminating, these clean animals. They carry less disease, and thus their carcasses create less interruption to life. But 
Notice still, so it's not like all of the boundaries are off. Notice still that when you are dealing with the dead body of even the clean animals, you still become unclean. And you have to go through a process of now becoming clean before you can go and approach God. Okay, so let's take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what is happening here. Death is meant to be seen as detestable by those who love God. It is meant to be seen as detestable by those who love God. Right? In the garden, in creation, God created everything. There was no death there. God created it all good. He created men and women in his image, uh, in his likeness. And, and all of that, there's, there was kind of this beautiful picture. And he said, though, If you eat of the tree that I'm telling you not to eat of, you will surely die. You will open the door for death to come in. And so human sin opened the door for death to come into God's world. Something that God did not uh, intend to happen, right? Like it wasn't like he was just anxious to create this place where death would rule. Human sin let death in and God hates death. It's not a source of power. The dead cannot do anything for you. Your dead ancestors cannot rearrange the circumstances of your life. Uh, Carrying around parts of dead things will not give you some kind of special protection. Death in God's creation is a devastating problem. It brings an end to life and relationships. It brings about mourning. It leaves wives and children without providers. It brings heartbreak. It is a detestable, despicable enemy. Death ruins families. It ends covenants. It devastates loved ones. And it sends countless people to hell. In the wake of death, entire families have to be restructured in terms of how they function. Like roles, Assets, relationships, they change hands with every single death. And no family is left the same no matter how much you prepare for it. (coughs) So these laws, they were training God's people to pay attention to death so that they might learn to hate death. Right, God here with his people, for what it's worth, he is forming the culture that would eventually influence the rest of the world. The Judeo-Christian ethic has impacted every culture from this point forward. From when Jesus came on the scene forward, it starts to make this massive influence. And God here is shaping this culture in a particular, particular way. And he sums up This entire section where he talks about eating and and he talks about dead things, he sums it all up by saying this statement in verse 45. He says this. He says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Like We have to know the nature of God. There is no darkness in him. There is no death in him. And what he's telling to his people is every interaction that you have with death, it's going to create a barrier between you and me. Right? Every time you are near it, you are going to need to cleanse yourself from it. It is inappropriate in relationship with me. It is unacceptable in relationship with me. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. 
And he's making sure that they understand this message. So church, our main point this morning is this. God's people, we are a people formed to hate death. We are formed to hate death. So what? So what? Number one. God and his people deal with but despise death. So in in Leviticus, we see that not only is death detestable to God, but things that harm or things that sicken or things that kill are also detestable to God. God deals with death, but he hates it. And so we hate death because death separates humanity from one another, right? It separates humanity from life. It separates humanity from God. In fact, the human senses are designed by God not just to discern death and decay, but to actually be repulsed by it, right? When we see things that are dead, when, I mean, even talking, like talking about that whole divination thing, it did not make anybody in here happy or excited or ready to go eat lunch, right? Like that's because our senses are repulsed by death. We are uh, in a very physical kind of uh, bodily way affected by encountering death. And not only are the human senses designed this way, but the human soul is designed this way. Like, spiritually, when we encounter death, we encounter trauma. Like, it is traumatic to to deal with and encounter death. Like, think of people who have to go through war, where death is around them all the time. Or, I mean, you could even lessen this to an extreme degree, I mean, just raise your hand. How many people in this room, like when you were a kid, ever watched a horror movie? How many people still, like, just as clear as day can see some of those scenes from those horror movies that you saw? Yeah. The the scenes are shocking to us. They really kind of reshape us and cause our minds to go back to those scenes again and again and again. Like, watching someone die, like watching, just encountering the situation where you watch someone pass into death. I mean, that can stick with a person for years. It can take years to overcome that experience of of watching that. Right? Like horror movies in general, they're all rooted in one fact, this idea that death is repulsive and disgusting and petrifying. Like suspense is scary because suspense is ultimately about something that might lead to death, right? Uh, Demons are scary because they represent death and separation from God. They steal and kill and destroy. And so we kind of are looking at all of this and looking what God was even setting up here in Leviticus and saying, like, we should be a people who hate death, right? Our, our hatred, as Christians, our hatred for death has always been a hallmark of how we live, right? We don't glorify it. We point people instead to life, right? We, we lament death with those who are grieving. We say, actually, you're right. This is not the way it's supposed to be, right? We say together with them that, that death is inappropriate, that it is wrong, that it doesn't fit with our experience And so the only times when we welcome death, and and I mean, it's beautiful that even when there wasn't clarity as to what overcoming death would look like in the Old Testament, 
that God gives this promise that says, okay, God, God's doing something really unique here. In Psalm 116, he says, um, precious in the eyes of God is the death of his saints. Like that, that is so, I mean, for, for a people who were trained to hate death, to separate it from, from it all the time, like what in the world is going on? How can God say that death is in some way precious for those who love him. But then I think of like when a believer who is in permanent and excruciating pain all the time is relieved by death and get to, to enter into the presence of Jesus, of the hope that was promised there in Psalm 116. When a true Christian dies expectedly in old age, we can look at that and we'd say, death is pointing us to life in those circumstances. But even then, death is not a good thing, right? What we are celebrating in those instances is the victory of the Lord over death, right? So as followers of Jesus, we don't celebrate death unless we're celebrating the death of Jesus. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. That doesn't mean that we fear death. In fact, quite the opposite. We, out of all people, ought to walk boldly into situations that most other people are not willing to walk into. right? Because we have the one solution that can actually deal with death appropriately. We know the one who has power over death and brings life from it. And so we have a boldness to walk into those who are grieving and, yes, sit with them in the, in the moments and those hard circumstances and point to the one who has power over death. But at the same time, we display our agreement with God that death is not how it's supposed to be. Okay, that was so what, number one. So what, number two. Jesus came to solve an unsolvable problem. Like before Jesus, the Jewish concept of an afterlife was very vague at best. Right? There was tons of disagreement within Judaism about what afterlife or lack thereof might look like. Entire camps uh, of Jews thought that uh, death was kind of just the end. Right? That that's all that there was. And then Jesus shows up on the scene in the middle of all of this disagreement. And we have these stories where Jesus, who is this rabbi, just walks into the rooms of dead people. Like walks straight in. There are these people who have died. Everybody in the house knows that they have died. And Jesus kind of boldly steps into those rooms, not afraid of what's going to happen. And what does he do? Well, he brings them to life. Right? Like with Lazarus, when Lazarus was in the tomb and uh, the, the stone was rolled over the tomb. And Jesus says, hey, move the stone away. And Mary's like, don't you know he's been dead for four days? Like, we're not, we're not going to expose ourselves to death in that way. We're not going to get that near to death. This is a real problem, Jesus. Why would you choose to open that door? And he says, well, do you have faith, Mary? He walks, boldly walks into places that nobody else would be willing to walk into. Like He displayed a confident power over every single thing that the Israelites were told to avoid. Right? Like, Think about uncleanness, those who are called unclean. He has no fear in drawing near to uncleanness, like into unclean things that are supposedly contaminate other things with their uncleanness. But Jesus was like so pure when he came that when he stepped into the situation, disease was healed, right? Uncleanness was purified and death fled away from him. 
Right? Then he walked willingly towards the cross. The cross was the Roman Empire's way of putting death on display and saying, look at our power, challenge us if you dare. And Jesus walked willingly towards the cross out of love for people. He fearlessly walked towards the cross and he went through death on the cross and came out the other side, destroying death and claiming victory for us. He says, if you want life, trust me, believe in me. Death will only be conquered through me. So John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. This world is plagued with death, but there is a way to life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I just want to tell you this morning, if you're listening to this, if if you don't know and trust Jesus, you need to know that death is a frightening and powerful enemy against you. And that is an enemy that ultimately leads to hell. But if you trust Jesus, death's power over you is undone. So I just invite you to hear the words of this hymn. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Or us sin no more has dominion for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, I would implore you today to trust him and let him claim your victory over death. Church, would you pray with me, please? God, we thank you for the way that you have revealed in your word even this kind of dissociation with death. That we are not a people who who, who are to draw near to it. That even as you are forming and shaping Israel, that kind of innate in how they interacted with the world was to be put off by death. To be put off from drawing near to dead things. Lord, and because of that, you clarified the problem that is presented by death. So that when we saw Jesus come and approach and walk into situations where people are dead and dying and bring life in himself for our sakes. Walk through death and conquer it. That we might see him and understand the significance of exactly what he is accomplishing for our sakes. So I pray that you would lift up in the hearts of all of us this morning just the glory of Jesus, the wonder of what he has done for us. We have victory over death. There was nothing that we could do about death. It is a powerful enemy, but Jesus is more powerful. So we thank you this morning and we ask that you would just be lifted up in our hearts as we continue in worship. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.